Hi, it's Laura Giles with Modern Animism Radio. Thank you for being here. I recently met Dr. Rich Blundell. Who is talking about this thing called ecological intelligence. And it sounds an awful lot like animism to me. So I thought you'd appreciate hearing from him too. So let's give thanks to our ancestors from all the realms so we can get to Dr. Blundell and ecological intelligence. I acknowledge the element of earth and thank you for the beautiful plants that are exploding with all this fresh food this week for our bodies and senses that allows us to participate in and enjoy all of life for stability, our foundation, our tenacity that gets us through the hard times. Acknowledging and gratitude to air for our breath, breath is life. I thank you for our words and vibrations that travel through the air that allow us to communicate across distances. Thank you, Air, for bringing us the whispers of our ancestors, guardian angels, and loved ones from across the veil and across the miles. I acknowledge the element of fire and ask that you help us to keep our inner fires burning with purification, passion, motivation. Thank you, Fire, for helping us to create as well as destroy. I acknowledge and give gratitude for water for our intuition, dreams, and feelings. Thank you, Water, for reminding us of our feminine ways of knowing from mysticism, shadows, and for helping us flow with ease. I give gratitude to our human, plants, animal, and mineral ancestors. May we never forget where we came from or to whom we belong, belong to each other now and forever. And I give gratitude to all of you who are listening, sharing our show with others, commenting and donating, if you'd like to help spread our mission, please consider writing a review of this podcast at iTunes as it really helps us to grow. So let's get to our guest, Dr. Blundell. Welcome. Thanks Hi. for being here. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for having me. Sure. So I was uh, checking out your website and it sounds like your call to adventure started with a bluefin tuna. Uh, <laughs> can you tell us about that? Sure. Um yeah, the, this was back in the, I guess it was the mid to late 80s. My career as a commercial fisherman had uh, just sort of accelerated into this, uh, you know, the world of tuna, which you may have seen on, uh, I don't know, cable TV is a lot of tuna shows these days. But this was back before any of that. And um, I should probably back up because the relevance of the tuna story uh begins a lot earlier than that um okay. it's 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 part of a it really is part of a, a bigger story which is when i was a kid growing up i was basically neglected and i mean that in a good way in other words i i was given this freedom to explore freedom to just get to know the land and the places that I was. This is in coastal New England. Um, and uh, because of that, plus this this thing that I'm only now beginning to realize, which is that um, I'm sensitive and which is a bit hard, or I feel a little uncomfortable saying that, but it's this one of these things that I'm, I'm having to actually admit that that I, I was really a sensitive kid and I was very aware and very tuned into what was going on around me. And, and that in, in hand in hand with that freedom resulted in this kind of upbringing that was, um, I guess it's kind of rare, which is that 
just in deep communion with the dirt and the mud and the leaves and the animals and the trees and the sky and all of the things that were in my world. Uh, and then as I grew up and, you know, had the whole tra trauma of high school, like, like most people and, um, didn't do well in school at all. Um, ended up not, not, they held me back as a, as a senior in high school because I didn't have enough credits or something. And they said, you know, there's 180 days in the school year and you've showed up for about 80 of those. What, what's up? And, you know, so I said, well, I was out fishing. I was out doing stuff. I was out in the world. And they were like, well, you, you don't have enough to graduate. So we're going to hold you back anyway, to make a long story short, because of that sort of lackluster academic career, um, I got into fishing, which um, back then I started with lobster, which is sort of a, a thing to do in, in, in that part of the world. If you don't have you know, access to getting out of the town, you become a fisherman. And I went on, get on, got on that path. And um, as I got older, I got further and further out to sea and going for different species and eventually got turned on to bluefin tuna. There's this huge bluefin tuna fishery off the tip of Cape Cod, a place called Stellwagen Bank, um, where there's a lot of bluefin tuna that come in. And it's a highly lucrative thing to do if you can get yourself out there with a boat and know how to catch a tuna. Well, um, because I had this sort of sensitivity of this habit, these habitats, I was actually pretty good at it. And, um, but I only had the chance to catch one because uh, we hooked on, this was back in the days when you, you, you caught them with hand lines as opposed to this like really expensive fishing gear they use now. And I uh, hooked on to this tuna and finally got it uh, to the boat, hauled it up on the boat. Everybody's really excited because this is an 800 pound thing that was gonna pay, you know, we were gonna get thousands and thousands of dollars for this fish. And um, at, at, some, at, at some point, um, the tuna, you know, when you, when you catch a tuna, normally you'd sell it to the boat that's out there. There's a big Malaysian or Chinese boat that freezes the fish and, you know, buys it right there. But we had to bring this one back to the dock. And so because it was so big, we had to cut the fins off. We had to bleed it. We had to, you know, leave it down in the gunnel on the side of the boat. And we rushed back to the dock to get the boat, to get the fish on ice. And as I was kneeling down to hook this fish up, you know, this, at this point, it, its fins were gone. It was bleeding all over the place, you know, and um, we were hooking the loop around the tail to winch it up onto the dock. And I just stopped for a moment and looked at this fish and got drawn into it as a being. And I was looking into its eye and it was almost on cue that the moment I did that, it died. You know, it had been alive that whole time. And um, I watched it die. And I don't know, it just, it was, it was a moment where there was all this congratulations. There was all this excitement and celebration about this fish that we had killed and all the money we, we were going to get. And no one had taken a moment to even notice it. And the, the animal, you know, the being that was there. This, and that's not just a being. This thing's the size of a large sofa. You know, it's huge. And um, it was just this moment where all of that sort of pride and joy for this thing turned into something else. It turned into sorrow and 
in a sense, dread and regret for what I had done. And uh, anyway, that, that moment, and I don't know, well, actually, I do know how to explain it, but I didn't know how to explain it at the time. I didn't know what that fish was saying, and I just certainly didn't know how it was saying it or what it was saying. And that was the trigger that changed me in some way so that instead of being a bad student, which had been my entire story up to that point, I suddenly wanted to learn. I wanted to learn how that communication could happen. And, um, you know, after, you know, 15 years then of catch up and academic work, I think I figured it out. I think I figured out how that kind of communication can happen. Um, and the trajectory that I took to get there was science. I realized that um, I had an affinity for science. I knew that science was the domain of inquiry that focused on the natural world. And so I was, I was, you know, very much attracted to that. And um, yeah, that's my bluefin tuna story. Um, yeah. Cool. Um, I think it's, so I live on a farm and I, living on a farm you're familiar with death and i'm also a um home funeral guide mm -hmm. so i think that you were really lucky honestly i think that when people are face to face with death and when death is personal that you can't really sport hunt or fish anymore because yeah. you see the value of the life that you're taking and it becomes about survival versus economics maybe or or fun it's not fun yeah i think those realizations did sneak up on me like i don't think i was ready for them at that moment well apparently i guess but they came at just the right moment but but um i hear what you're saying i i, I definitely take no joy or pleasure i still fish but only to eat and if i do yeah. kill a fish i i i let myself experience what i'm doing you know i yeah. really let myself say okay I'm doing this and I'm, and I, and I feel, I feel the full impact of my action and then I do it. I don't do it in a way that's just dismissive of this thing. I, I try to do it in a way that's reverent and um, which, you know, that's not to say I like ritualize it, but I definitely spend time with that action with my act and, all of the emotional things that go with it because at the, you know, because there's also I, what comes with that is a sense of gratitude that I would not exactly. want to forfeit. I would not want to forfeit the gratitude that yeah. also comes with that act. And so, um, yeah, that's, uh, I hear what you're saying about death. Death say it's a, it's a big subject. And lately I've been thinking about how, um, I kind of practice death in a way like every day I let some part of me die. And I don't mean like I'm gradually dying. What I mean is I do death in a small way every day. And by like letting me rich kind of die, I don't, you know, I don't pass away, but I'm just saying I, I let that thing that I identify with as rich dissolve which is a kind of death. And um, it's interesting because all that really does is make life richer in a way, you know, exactly. letting, yeah. I don't know how that really works, but uh, it seems to be a theme. 
Yeah. So I think uh, I, I hear what you're saying. I totally agree with what you're saying um, and practice that too in a conscious way. I mm-hmm. think it's just about living whole and, you know, the sun comes up, the sun goes down. It, it happens all around us and it's mm-hmm. kind of just an engagement of being alive, I think. Yeah, I think so. But, but, but really thinking about it, like, I, yes. it, it, it doesn't, it's not a superficial kind of engagement. It's actually, and that maybe this, and maybe this is, you know, connected to that thing I'm calling sensitivity as a child, but there's something about being aware of, <laughs> and not just taking for granted, this, the complexity that's around us, and the, um, the magic, and I use that word magic in a very measured way, because you have to remember, I'm a scientist. Like I, 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 I genuinely came up through the ranks of academia in the sciences. And so I have that baggage. I have that kind of trauma. <laughs> I, I consider myself um, a recovering academic. Hi, my name is Rich. I'm a recovering academic. But, but I have had to, um, uh, I've, I've had to, Sever some of that, sever, sever some of the uh, commitment to rational thinking in order to fully understand this thing that I think we're both sort of, this thing that we've both noticed about the world and many people have noticed. Uh, there's a tension and there's a, uh, a kind of a conflict that's going on with um, a, a modern way of thinking. And, and these are, there's so many things, sorry, I'm this flood, all these things that I wanted to talk to you about are, are flooding in all at once. But um, so you, you, I listened to one of your podcasts where you talked a bit about the difference between indigenous and um, modern animism. And I don't know, I, I, I guess I, I wanted to hear more about that. I wanted to, um, you know, maybe hear you say it again. Oh, well, that's interesting because um, one of the things that appealed to me about you is that you you never say animism. You talk about this in a very Mm. scientific way. And I'm like, hey, this guy, I think he is a um, closeted animist. (laughs) Well, uh, uh, what do you call that? Uh, uh, Agnostic, maybe, or atheist animist. You sound like an atheist animist, but I'm not sure if you were familiar. Would you call it that? I wouldn't say atheist. Um, the The problem is, the problem is we do not have the language or the framework for for the world that I come from. You know, as an academic, yeah. as a, as a scientist, to take what you know and what I know seriously. Like, it either gets compartmentalized as woo woo, you know, new age spiritualist woo woo, or um, reductionist, positivist, rational, you know, science, which, and neither of those things are complete and they both are problematic. And I think what we really, really need is a whole new way of talking about it, which really means we, we need a whole new paradigm for understanding and experiencing it. And I think, um, so I think the, the current landscape is kind of treacherous for, um, I, I feel it. I feel a kind of treachery when I talk about this stuff. And that's, and I don't, I'm, I'm perfectly happy to use the term animism, but if I did, especially with my scientific colleagues, they would 
automatically assume that what I meant was, oh, these are the this is that primitive, you know, uh, idea of the that the world is full of spirit and that everything has spirit, which, you know, in one sense is absolutely true, but in another sense, it just doesn't hold water in a scientific worldview, and this is the kind of thing that I'm trying to. I'm trying to navigate this, which is why I'm interested in talking to you because, you know, I see you found a comfortable place. You found a place to inhabit where you're perfectly happy to talk about these things. And, and I can tell just by the energy that comes through your voice that you're helping so many people that, you know, that, that, you know, that, um, I guess what I'm saying is we need this so badly our culture needs this so badly and you've found a way to talk about it and you've found an audience and you've found, you know, all of that. I haven't found that yet. You know, I haven't found a way to come at this. Um, but I, but I'm pretty close. I think it's something like the tuna story. It took me a long time to figure out what that tuna was saying and how it was saying it. But I think I am coming around to, um, you know, an adequate and, you know, righteous way of talking about this stuff. Well, I do think we are saying the same thing. I think it's the same orange or whatever. And we're, or the elephant, you know, and, mm-hmm. and we're talking about it, but we're talking about it from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. So going back to your question with indigenous, so I'm indigenous animist and that doesn't work in the modern world. You're not going to do the rituals and, and it, you, it's just not socially acceptable. You can't really to do walk it around, to walk around in a loincloth and have and with with gourds of of, of right shaman dust. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, in the the dress part, I I wouldn't really have a problem with because I'm kind of out there anyway. But um, some of the other stuff, you you just it just doesn't work, and and not because it's socially not acceptable, although that's certainly part of it. But, you know, everything's always evolving and everything, the kind of like you were talking about a little bit dies every day. You know, we're a different people now. We're a different society and a different landscape. And you have to incorporate all of those things in order to be here now, mm-hmm. to be present, mm-hmm. to be real. Um, and so that's really why we, we came up with the modern animism. And the thing that makes me sad is that so many people latch on for that on a spiritual perspective because they're just lost and looking for something. And then they kind of miss the whole point of the sacredness of it, of the connection of it. And, Mm. and it's just about, and I hate talking negatively about anybody or, you know, making anybody into a stereotype, but it's things like, you know, I got my crystals, bitches, leave me alone. That stuff like, Oh, it makes me cringe. And I, I think it misses the magic and the majesty of, of everything. Not to say that there's not darkness, because that's certainly part of it. Mm. Um, and anger is a part of it and rebellion's a part of it. But I think if you're not tapping into the love piece, you're really yeah. missing the big picture. Yeah, fundamentally, that is it. And I, you know, that's something that you just can't deny that. Um, it's one thing that I sort of have to remember every day is that this is about love. This is about yeah. feeling love for the opportunity to participate in this thing called reality um, and all of its complexity. I just wish that we had a way of talking about 
these things that were consistent with the science. And when I, when I say that, I don't mean any particular like scientific nugget. This is, this is one of the ways that I think I'm figuring out how to talk about this. My, the, the field that I actually got my PhD in is called big history, which is essentially cosmic evolution. It tells the story of the cosmos. It's, you know, starts with the big bang and then it tells everything that we know through the through science, you know, right up to the present moment. That story that science tells about reality includes all of the indigenous traditions, all of the religious, you know, and spiritual inclinations. It includes all of this cultural stuff. Those are not non-scientific realms when you consider the whole story. Like, in other words, there is a whole story that science tells. And these ideas like animism are part of that story. They're not outside of the scientific story of the universe. They're actually part of it. And I think, um, I just think that's, that's one way where I see a new way of talking about this, you know, coming into view that, that, that if we can talk about, and see, this is the thing, because I'm a scientist, I always get sort of pigeonholed into, well, can you prove this or that experience as valid? Or can you, do you have scientific terminology or scientific evidence to prove that, you know, channeling is a thing? No, I don't. And I can't. And I think that's an, a misappropriation of science. But what I can say is that the whole thing is magic. The whole thing is sacred. Like, and science is just one way that humans try to understand that magic. And, and even if they figure something out, that doesn't mean the whole magic is all figured out and it doesn't make the magic go away. You can't explain away the magic with science. All science really does is reveal more and more and more magic. And this is one of the sort of reasons when you use the term modern, I kind of, you know, it kind of confuses me because to me, modern has many different sort of uh, definitions. One is that it's like today, contemporary. We live in the modern world, which is like today. But then there's also like modernism, which is really the idea that science can figure it out. Science knows the answers, or if it doesn't know the answers, it could know the answers to everything, which, you know, that's naive. And with, you know, any serious scientist today, anybody who really seriously looks at the philosophy of science would tell you that modernism is, is bunk. You know, it's not relativism and quantum dynamics and all this, you know, newest science is saying that, wait a second, that modernist idea was naive. And so it's not really possible to think like that. So I guess I'm just saying, what's the new thing? Like I'm asking what, what is, where is this new thing? Cause as I was saying before, we need it. And I think you're on the front lines of this and you, you know, you're talking with people who are spiritually, you know, searching. And um, I guess I just, and I'm coming at it from the sort of environmentalist side too, which is that we're destroying the planet. We're making it uninhabitable for everybody. You know, it doesn't matter what your color or 
religion or spiritual practices are if we don't have a habitable planet. And so I guess I'm just wondering if there's some way to turn the page on all of this historic division between, you know, animism as a spiritual thing and science. Sorry, that's a lot, but like I said. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is a big topic. And I think all of that intersects, like you're saying. So um, I think you have a solution. <laughs> what, what is your idea about that? I guess just to keep living it, you know, to keep living um, what I know and what I feel and communicating it. One of the things, you know, now that I've, I never would have thought this, you know, growing up or at any point in my academic career, I never would have thought I'm going to work with artists. You know, like I would have in my entire history on this planet, I'd never engaged with art until the last couple of years. And this is answering your question about what, what do I think is the way forward? I'm now seeing how artists have a kind of freedom and a kind of creativity that the sciences, you know, envies, you know, like, so I just think working with artists and getting artists to communicate not explicitly, I'm not talking about activist art or political art, but I'm talking about art that somehow communicates with nature um, and then embeds that em or, 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 or manifests that communication in itself, in, it, in the art, can then somehow communicate that to an audience. And I'm still pretty naive, naive about what art is but i think art creates culture and i think culture is how we you know advance the human presence the human condition and so if we can get artists to have the courage and the clarity and the confidence to listen to nature and to let her speak through them and i don't mean the artist then gives up and has no role. I'm saying that the artist and nature work in alliance to communicate what nature is trying to tell us, then we will end up eventually creating a culture that basically is animist. That is, that is, you know, animist by a word other than animism. You know, it's just we, we, that we live the reality that, yeah. that the world is awash in communication. And, you know, this isn't about channeling an ancestor necessarily as it is about channeling nature, the world, all of it, you know, and yeah, so I guess that would be my answer to your question, you know, what's my plan uh, to do that. What I hear you saying is the, the marriage of the yin and the yang. So the spiritual uh, with the scientific or the creative, with the mother with the father. Mm. Um, and, and the thing that you're talking about exists. I just don't think that there's a consistent bridge. Mm. Well, it exists where? Like in, in your world? Like in, in your, yeah, com in your sure. community? Well, it doesn't sure. exist in my community. This is what I'm saying. Right. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. We need a bridge. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, but the thing is that is that I, I think there are valid reasons for science wanting to protect scientific knowledge. And I think because 
because they're very careful and they, they have a lot of respect for the knowledge that science generates. And I think that for whatever reason, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not judging here, but I'm saying that there's a lot of language and ideas and practices and there's a lot coming out of the, forgive me, new age community that just is like, does not, it, it just doesn't, it's not that scientists um, are disrespectful of it. It's just they're uninterested in it because it's, it's, it's not doing, it's not doing the work and not getting the job done for them. And so, um, so that's the thing. I mean, I, I, I think it could be easy to just say what people want to hear to say, yes, the world is alive and full of spirit and we can tap into it and we can listen and we can learn and we can grow and it's love. Yeah. I could go around saying that in some ways I do, but, but, you know, how am I going to, how am I going to bring my community on board? Because, you know, they're people too. And, and they, they see this, you know, they just don't want to forfeit the scientific worldview in order, you know, in order to feel that way in order to, so I guess that's why I'm saying that um, the struggle here is to find something that's of a different category to -hmm. talk about this. That's what I'm looking Mm -hmm. for still. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, there's distrust on our side too, because I think uh, like plant medicine, for example, Mm -hmm. Um, Plant medicine is gigantic now and lots of people are engaging in it. And uh, when you say that, do you mean psychedelics? Not solely psychedelics, but yes, psychedelics. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and the scientific view is to isolate the specific compound and then mass manufacture that and make a um, bioidentical patent it and make a ton of money. Whereas from an animistic well, 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 when you put it that way, I, I don't sign me up. Like that's not <laughs> like when you put it that way, <laughs> you know, that's not for me either. I'm not, I'm not, you know, but at the same time, I'm not like you said, you know, I'm not going to, I got my crystals, bitches, whatever. You know, I'm, those two things sound like, you know, those are the two versions that I really don't want to go toward either of those, but sorry, yeah. I didn't mean to interrupt you. It's okay. It's okay. So all I'm saying is I think that there's a bit of suspicion on both sides and a little wariness on both sides, which I think is healthy. Yeah. So it's not an easy, easy thing to do. No, but it is a, it is a awesome thing to do, you know, and uh, I'm okay with that. Like I, I get to, I get to think about, I get to spend time in, uh, uh, an enchanted world. Like right now there's a crow. I've been listening to these crows every day and, and they make such a racket. <laughs> yeah, they do. I'm wondering what they're trying to say. And I think what they're <laughs> trying to say is chill out. We're here. We're going to make this noise. You can either, you know, learn to live with it and love it, you know, or you can, or you can go pull your hair out. Because... <laughs> so is that a part of that attitude, a part of ecological intelligence? Well, I should probably say what ecological intelligence is, at least the way I sort of define it. I didn't make up the words ecological or intelligence, but I haven't really heard anybody using those two together, at least in the way that I use it. What I mean by ecological intelligence is 
the intelligence of nature expressed through human thought and action. And, and the intelligence of nature is relational. It's all about relationships. Without relationships, there's nothing. And so ecology is the scientific study of relationships. And so when I say ecological intelligence, I'm talking about the, the matrix of relationships generated by nature has its own intelligence. And when we, when we, when, you know, when we can align with that and we can tap into it and, you know, feel it within us because it is, and this is where the story of the cosmos comes in, because if you, you know, part of the story is, of the cosmos is the story of, of, you know, life emerging, animals emerging from, you know, simpler forms of life to more complex life, consciousness coming out of a particular, you know, neurological sort of relational thing that happens. And when you look at the whole story, you suddenly see how, you know, our experience of the world is a part of the world. It's not an experience of the world out there. Our experience is the experience of the world, you know, and there's nothing woo woo about that. Um, you know, there's no scientist who can say, no, you're wrong. That's not true because it is true. Like, and so I just think that uh, somewhere in there is um, this thing that, that I'm, I happen to be looking for, which is a new way of talking about what animism is also pointing to. So you don't have a background in um, theology or, or primitive religion? No, but but I do consider myself to be indigenous, which uh -huh. I know that 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 can really piss people off today because I know. <laughs> you know, but but if you think about indigenous as being of a place from a place, my God, I feel like I'm from a place. I know when I'm home. I can smell mm -hmm. it in the I can smell it in the air. I can feel it in the grit of my teeth. I can, you know, I can I can see it in the way light reflects off of things. I know where the springs are. I know what bird that is. I can, you know, by just hearing it miles away, you know, if there's anything, in, that's what indigenous means. It means to feel home in a place based on the nature and the relationships that are there. So I'm fully comfortable calling myself indigenous, even though, you know, I walk around looking like you know, frat boy or something, but um, I really do feel indigenous. Sorry. Well, it's it's just interesting that so much of the way that you language things, you speak like a person who knows indigenous culture. It may, I, yeah, I mean, I can't deny that. Not that I would or would want to, but uh, so, you know, like, <laughs> so what? Well, I'll so all that's to say that I think that, you know, we're coming from really different places. You're coming from the scientific background, but there is just the intersection. It's all the same stuff. Yeah. It's just language differently, I think. I think so too. And I, and I, and I hope that we are finding a way to, you know, talk about this that can be more inclusive. That doesn't, you know, that isn't about the accoutrements of being indigenous but the actual experience of being indigenous. Mm -hmm. And you have a, is it a school, a class? 
Um, I teach a course in ecological intelligence. I have two really. Mm -hmm. One is an eco ecological intelligence for artists. So teaching artists how to see. And, and the thing about artists is that a lot of them are sensitive anyway. And they, you know, they're like intuitive people. And so they, they feel these things. Um, and, I, and I don't, I'm not trying to explain. I'm not trying to explain their experiences scientifically. I'm just trying to say, hey, that thing you feel is real. Like it's, it's not, you know, it's not just you conjuring up you know, from your imagination, not that that would make it any less valid, but the point is it's, it's a real dynamic, a real ecological dynamic. And so Oika for artists is ecological intelligence for artists. And then there's another course that I'm developing, which is just ecological intelligence for earthlings, which would be for anybody. Um, mm -hmm. But these are really in sort of constant development. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. My, uh, my real focus right now is doing what I'm calling ecological interpretations of art. So I've been meeting a lot of artists and getting to know their work and some art that I look at and some artists that I work with, I can just feel the ecological intelligence and I can see it. It's clear as day. And so what I do is I interpret this work through an ecological lens. And so I have a bunch of videos that I create where I talk about how this piece of art, whether it's a painting or a sculpture or even digital art, how it taps into ecological intelligence and how it speaks in ecological intelligence and how it makes me feel as an, as a viewer, as a, as a, you know, as an audience of the art. And it's, it's working out pretty well. They're very short videos. They're like less than five minutes. Most of them are about three, but they're just short concise and hopefully you know powerful and i show people art i talk about ecological intelligence and i just put it out there and see what happens so do you feel like that's something that can be taught uh i do i think people can attune to it i think we all have it internally you know if you look at the history of humanity by the way i've been talking about this a lot lately lately this idea of earthling theory we have all these theories about what makes humans so unique and special and, you know, what sets us apart from anything else. Our species, you know, Homo sapiens evolved, you know, in a very complex way from lots of different earlier hominids, Australopithecines and, you know, Homo erectus, Homo, um, Homo habilis. I could go through all the different, you know, Sahelanthropus, all these different early primates, but, only our species, you know, when, when our species left Africa, you know, and which it did several times, but on one of these leavings, the diaspora out of Africa brought us into contact with every habitat on the planet. So, you know, we left the trees, we crossed grasslands, we lived with rivers and estuaries, we lived with swamps, went through forests, skirted glaciers, crossed oceans. Every one of those habitats that we interacted with as a species imprinted its ecological intelligence on us over generations and generations and generations, accumulating the our species accumulated the ecological intelligence of all these different habitats. By the time we get up to Western Europe, you know, 18,000 years ago, you know, suddenly the cave art is just, there's this huge explosion of, of creative expression of our species. That's not an accident. You know, the reason that happened, the reason the 
art, you know, the Magdalenian revolution happened was precisely because our species had that long sustained and intimate relationship with every habitat on this planet. No other species has that. If you look at our common ancestor with chimps, the Helanthropus um, um, chedensis, the, that that lint, we evolved from Sahelanthropus and so did chimps, but the branch that stayed in Africa in the trees became modern chimps, whereas we went on to do everything we've done. The difference between those two stories is that we had relationships with every habitat. The chimps never did. That's why they're still chimps. <laughs> so I just think we have forgotten that all that we do, all this creative genius and this beauty and art and spirituality and all this stuff that we do, we got from the earth. The earth endowed us with that over, you know, six million years of evolution as a primate on this planet. And, and I don't understand why we don't all know that and why artists don't know that. Why don't <laughs> artists know that their creativity is a direct endowment of the earth itself? You know, we think about it as this is my idiosyncratic genius and I'm expressing it on the, you know, on the canvas. No, you, it's, it's, you're actually expressing an alliance, a hard won, you know, privilege to express that creativity that the earth endowed upon you. And if you're not paying that respect, it's no wonder we feel lost. It's no wonder we feel alienated and separated because we don't have, because we've forfeited that whole part of our identity as earthlings. That's why I call it earthling theory. Sorry. I keep so how do you, tangents. how do you teach that without experience? Uh, to me, it, it's visceral. You, you have to yes. like, kind of like when you're talking about the tuna, you know, and, and being present when the tuna died, that was an experience. It wasn't just right. something you heard no, about. Absolutely. And I've heard you talk about this too. And you're absolutely right. That experience is, you know, essential. And that's why every concept that I teach, I teach a bunch of different concepts, emergence, fractals, cybernetics, gratitude, um, tacit learning, radical affection. I teach all these concepts in my course, but every one of them is actually an experience. And it's an experience that a lot of people have already had. They just don't really register it. But when you learn the language to talk about that experience, and it doesn't always, I'm not saying that we can explain away our experiences by using language. But what I am saying is that every one of these concepts is actually an experience too. And I think you, you know that and you talk about that. And I agree. It's, but I also think that some people, you know, myself included, I get a lot out of intellectualizing stuff. I can actually intellectualize myself into a pretty profound spiritual experience. <laughs> And so it works, you know, it, it works to really think through, whoa, what is this? Because when those two things come together, then this thing that called consilience happens when you have this consilience is when two lines of inquiry converge on a, on a unique insight. And if, and if they converge from both an intellectual and an experiential uh, place, so if you can experience something, you know, viscerally and then intellectualize it and, and understand it intellectually, and they both converge or, or, or uh, on that insight, then that insight has special value. It has, it's, it should be given some kind of privileged um, place. And I think mm -hmm. that's, uh, I think that's what, you know, you understand in your course. And it's something that, you know, I happen to have stumbled upon too, that, that, that experience and knowing go very, they can really uh, enhance each other into something 
totally emergent. Awesome. So um, where can people learn about that? <laughs> uh, by spending time in nature and really listening to it. Yeah, I'm not going to give a plug other than just to say, you know, nature, really. Um, yeah. Oh, give a plug. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, give my, a plug. My, my, you know, my thing is called oika, which is a word I had to invent be, for the same reason we're talking about. There just isn't the language to talk about this stuff. So I invented this world called, word called oika, uh, which is based in the ancient Greek word oikos, which is the root of the word ecology. So the word eco comes from oikos. But that's also economy. So the, the word economy and ecology both share that same oikos root. The difference is that, um, you know, the ancient Greek society was very hierarchical and patrician. And so I feminized oikos to oika. Uh, and that has become the sort of uh, the word to describe what ecological intelligence feels like. So in other words, if you feel ecological intelligence within you, that's oika. That's, and so my website's called oika.com. That's where I put my stuff out there and uh, where I develop my courses. And also that's where you can find some of these art videos that I've been producing, which if I were going to plug anything, it would be that. Uh, if you go to oika.com and check out the media projects, you'll see them there. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty excited about them. That's why I'm talking about them. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, thanks guys for tuning in. You've heard from us. I want to hear from you. Feel free to join the conversation on our private Facebook group. We're also on YouTube, TikTok, and Twitter, if those are your preferred platforms. And if you'd like to support us with donations, you can do that on our website at pansociety.net. Much love to everybody. I'm Laura Giles with Pan Society, and see you next week. Bye-bye.